This is a 980 CKNW podcast. It's been said, your health is your wealth. The benefits of great health cannot be overstated. Great health leads to a longer and happier life and even better relationships. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, a show about health. Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, and yes, even sexual health. I'm Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, author of the book Sex and Health, Why One Can't Come Without the Other, a blogger, clinician, TEDx speaker, and your resource to help start that conversation, answer your questions, and help you live life to the fullest. I have a passion for up-to-date and accurate health information to guide you so that the life you live is the best it can be. I make no innuendos, no judgments, and certainly no apologies, just fearless, straight-up health talk. I guarantee it will be illuminating, enlightening, and fun, so do stay with me. Please put the kitties to bed as listener discretion is advised. We will touch upon sex as it relates to health as well. Well, good evening. Thanks for joining me. If you're new to the program, welcome. Lovely to have you. We have lots to talk about on the program tonight. It's January, and many of you have made many, many New Year's resolutions. And one of those resolutions may be you're going to stop drinking. You're going to at least stop drinking for the month of January. You know, here we are. We're well into January. And, well, how are you doing on that resolution? Most resolutions are over by the second week of February, so hopefully you're still going. But this leads me to a subject that is a very uh, common issue, which is addiction. And there are many myths about addiction in and of itself, but there are so many myths around relapsing if you have decided to stop drinking or stop doing drugs or stop stopping smoking marijuana, for example. So what are the differences between relapsing and a lapse in your sobriety journey? So I'm going to be reviewing that tonight on the program. And also January is that time of year that we want to get our lives in balance. We want to have our finances in order and we want to have our house cleaned and our car clean and our relationship going really well. And we want the kids to get off on a great start at school and do their homework at the same time every night. And we also want to stay in shape and we're going to get back to the gym and we're going to see eating well. Is that reality? So I'm going to be talking about some tips on how you can actually live the most balanced life possible. And your relationship is important, and you may have also decided this year, 2018, to uh, put a little bit more focus into your relationship and make it as best as it can be. Well, there are some morning habits that you may engage in with your partner. I know what you're thinking, and uh, it may lead to that, but these tips are not that. These tips are ways to increase the bond in your relationship. Make it better. Make it the best it can be. Also, I'm going to be reviewing some research around fertility or infertility and testosterone levels and the impact that uh, a ubiquitous over-the-counter pain medication may have on a man's ability to impregnate a woman. So it's interesting research and it's something you may not think of and it actually underscores the reason why you need to be full disclosure with your doctors as to what medication. So you might think, oh... You know, I've got some muscle aches from working out at the gym, and I'm just going to pop this particular pain med, and no biggie. But it can be a biggie, and I'm going to review that with you. 
Also, I'm going to be talking to a an Olympic gold medalist. She reached the podium in the year 2000. She was on top of the world, or so you would think. You've heard of imposter syndrome? She didn't feel like she belonged there. She felt out of step, if you will, a dream that she had worked on for 10 years, ever since she was an eight-year-old child. And now she works to help other women because after she went through a trauma and she was broken open, and often that's what happens to people after they've experienced a trauma, they break open and they become vulnerable. And it's probably the only time that they let down the shield in life and and you think it can be the worst thing in life, but it actually turns out to be the silver lining you needed. Samantha Arsenault, or Samantha Arsenault Livingstone now. She's a married mother of four daughters, and she's going to share her amazing story of what it's like to reach the podium. And many of us have gold medal moments, and we don't realize that. So what are your gold medal moments? Have there been times in life when you felt you didn't deserve that promotion? You didn't deserve that job? You were undeserving of wealth? perhaps, or or even good health. So there are so many gold medal moments in life. And uh, when women share stories in particular, we empower other girls and women. And so it's really important that uh, you have a confidant and you talk to people about the issues that are going on. And so to that end, you can email me anytime at nursetalk at hotmail.com. I've, I am going to review some emails that I've received from you and, and one in particular. And And it's about a gentleman's issue with uh, things happening too quickly in the bedroom for him. That's a common sexual health dysfunction that can occur for many men. And uh, it can lead to embarrassment and shame and guilt. And it may even impact the relationship because it's over before it's over. And, And it can have an impact on your intimacy and your bonding. And you can feel like a failure. And there's so many emotions that so many men go through. But men may not even share this with their own partners. So I'm going to read that heart-rendering email as well as uh, an issue that he spoke about how he wanted to support his wife, which I thought was just so beautiful. His wife, uh, this is a gentleman in his 40s, in his late 40s, he's 47, and, and he wanted to finally deal with his sexual dysfunction and uh, things come in too quickly. And also... Um, he wanted to know how he could support his wife who was experiencing some of those symptoms of perimenopause. And perimenopause is the years leading up to the menopause. And many women experience vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, but there are other symptoms and issues that women may experience like leg pain and joint pain. It's not necessarily due to that excessive workout. It may be, but it may not be. It may be because your estrogen levels are fluctuating during the years leading up to the menopause. So lots on the program tonight to discuss. Feel free to email me at nursetalk at hotmail.com. I really love receiving your emails. Uh, Not only does it help me to learn and help me to help you, but you may be helping other people who may in fact be experiencing the exact same symptoms, problems, issues in their relationships or health concerns that you are. And so again, when we share our stories, we empower others. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. It's January and many people have decided to take a break from alcohol. 
It's a very common New Year's resolution. They're going to have a dry month, or maybe they only drink six months a year and not the other six months. There are so many myths about alcohol use and abuse, substance use disorders, and one in particular that is related to this subject is relapse. So this is for people who have addiction issues, who may be in a 12-step program, for example, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they are often will go cold turkey, so they will stop drinking, enter the program with a plan to go through the 12 steps. Often the advice is go 90 meetings in 90 days, so that's three months. And many people are advised to sit and to listen, to hear other people's stories. Those stories may, in fact, resonate with you. And that's a very important aspect in terms of the treatment of addiction. Many of the patients I see in my clinical practice struggle with living with a person who may have an addiction, and then that person may be codependent or somebody who enables the person to carry on or to be able to carry on with their lifestyle. And some of the classic things that addicts do, they lie, number one. They create drama and chaos, especially in a family. They get very angry. They have emotion regulation problems, and they can be mean. These aren't everything, and it doesn't actually mean that people with addiction issues are bad people necessarily. They've lost their way. They often describe feeling rejection, feeling shame, feeling guilt. They have fear. They have anxiety. They have unresolved issues, perhaps in their family of origin. Perhaps they have a genetic propensity toward addiction. But it's a very important aspect around treatment is this idea that about relapse and what does relapse mean? And does relapse mean that it's over, that forget it? Okay, you took a step backward after taking 30 steps forward, and now it's over. First of all, there's a lapse and there's a relapse. And there's a major difference between having one slip and having a relapse. So that lapse actually represents a temporary slip or return to a previous behavior that one is trying to control or to quit. To be honest with you, it takes three months. Remember the 90 meetings in 90 days. According to research, it takes three months to change behavior. It's very difficult to do that. This is not an easy thing. And, and that's why someone has to be all in and they if they are suffering with an addiction problem or you are suffering with an addiction problem, whether it be to cocaine or to alcohol or to shopping or to food, you need to want to change. You need to want to get healthy. You can't do it for somebody else. You can't do it for your wife or your kids or your husband or your friends or your parents. you got to do it for you. So that lapse is a fear for all people because that's many people have difficulty thinking, I'm never going to be able to drink for the rest of my life. And, and so we have to remember that we're human. And relapse is something entirely different than a lapse. So as I said, a lapse is a, a short slip, a temporary slip, whereas a relapse represents a full-blown return to a pattern of behavior that one has been trying to moderate or quit altogether. So if you are living with somebody that you suspect has addiction issues, if you diarize, if you write down their behaviors as it relates to their drinking, you're going to see a pattern there. You're going to see a pattern of anger or perhaps missed work or um, lying or some behaviors, infidelity. You may see cheating. 
uh, people don't realize the consequences of their behavior when they are drunk, when they are drinking, when they are high. And so that's why it's a, it's a very different person that you're living with somebody, when somebody is addicted to alcohol or drugs than the person who is, is clean and sober. But the purpose of this conversation is lapse versus relapse because you don't want to give up because you've had a lapse. And so there are so many misconceptions, myths, and one of those is that all people with substance use disorders relapse. And that's not necessarily true. Relapse rates in recovery are definitely high, but it's not inevitable that every recovering addict will go through a relapse or or have a relapse. And relapse is not necessarily unique to people with substance use disorders. So the misconception can lead to this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy for someone in recovery. Remember, recovery is a process. There are a number of people that do experience relapse, but it doesn't mean that that is what is going to happen to you. So relapse rates for recovery from addiction between 40 and 60 percent, which are pretty high, are similar to relapse rates for trying to change behaviors associated with many chronic medical conditions like diabetes, hypertension, obesity. So some of these figures indicate that it's difficult to change behaviors because they're habitual and they're enjoyable. On some level, you know, you like to light up that cigarette perhaps and that people love the the feeling of the cigarette, holding it in there and it Breathing in the smoke and blowing it out, there's just something very appealing about that. There's something very almost arousing about that. So it's, this is difficult. Understand that. And while relapse rates and recovery are definitely high, you, it's not definitely going to be your outcome. The other myth is that you can only relapse by using your drug of choice. Many people who are trying to get off alcohol may actually acquire an addiction to coffee. That's okay. Or exercise. That's even better. Uh, But you know what? You can actually uh, set yourself up for potential problems during recovery because relapse can, you can relapse uh, to another drug like cocaine or marijuana. And it's so this is something that you must be weighed, made aware of. And many people will go off alcohol and then they'll decide, well, you know what, I've still got this anxiety. I'm still, you know, dealing with some problems. It's tough. It's really difficult. Your brain goes through changes after you come off of, of something that you have been dependent upon. And so it's difficult not to be attracted perhaps to another substance like cocaine. A relapse in addiction is the result of a return to an old way of thinking and behaving that was originally dysfunctional for you. And so a person who switches from alcohol maybe to cocaine isn't addressing their dysfunctional behavior and their patterns of behavior and their negative patterns of behavior that are causing so much grief in their lives. People who live with those who are addicted live in a world of drama, chaos, insecurity, unreliability, never knowing what to expect, what's going to happen. I've heard heard stories of women who've said that their husbands, you know, made it halfway up their hill and then passed out on the steering wheel of their car because they were so drunk with little kids at home or waiting up at night. Is she going to come home? Is she going to come home? They're worried about their wife who is abusing alcohol. One of the other myths about uh, relapse versus a lapse in behavior 
People think that those who relapse lack motivation. And this is such a common misperception, especially friends and family believe this of their loved ones that are in recovery. But those of us who treat and help and guide people with substance use disorders believe that relapse is a process. It's a part of the process, in other words, because recovery is a process and so much will change over time. It doesn't mean that these people uh, lack motivation. What it means is that it's challenging to work toward a very difficult goal in life. And there may be a number of failures along the way, and I don't even like to use the word failures, but there will be a number of setbacks along the way, especially because you're trying to change everything about your mood and your reaction to things and, and your drama and your chaos. And, you know, some people love that, that whole drama uh, and they love to start arguments with people and, you know, when people just get lured right into those arguments and then it's sort of, you know, I want to be... I want to be right. I have to be right because addicts often are the CEOs, executive directors, managers of everybody's life, but they're the worst people for that position, especially their own life. Another misconception or a myth is that relapse means treatment has failed. No, you're always making progress. And since recovery is a process and often requires many adjustments to a way the person is thinking and behaving, this this lapse or, or a relapse is not a sign of treatment failure. It is part of the process. And so there may be an adjustment needed in the tri- treatment program to make it more effective. And so those are some of the myths out there about lapse versus relapse. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I'm Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Did you ever feel like you shouldn't have won? Did you ever feel like an imposter? Did you ever feel like you don't belong there? Well, Samantha Arsenault is a gold medal winner, an Olympic gold medal winner. She was the leadoff in the relay swim in the Olympics of 2000. She got to the podium, and she felt like she didn't belong there, if you can believe that. And Samantha joins me on the line. Hello, Samantha. Hi. How are you doing today? Great to be here. Oh, I'm so... (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story, and uh, especially for sharing your story today on the radio with me. Um, yes. You know, I was really struck by your story. Here you were, you had it all. Young, talented, athletic, an Olympic gold medalist. You get to a place where very, very few people in the world get to, mm-hmm. the podium of the Olympics, and you feel like you don't belong there. Oh, man standing atop the podium. I mean, that dream was born 10 years earlier as an eight-year-old. Just the curiosity is what drove me to, to get to the top of that podium to know what it would be like. And it was, it was, you know, it's, I've been hiding this piece of my story for many years, you know, after coming home from Sydney, told, you know, st- telling my story of how I got there in the journey. And it, you know, four years ago, I had a life event that allowed me to embrace that 18-year-old and, and, and tell this part of the story because I feel like it gives permission for others to say, oh, my gosh, me too. I, like, I, I feel like sometimes I'm not worthy of my successes. I feel like I'm going to be found out. And that's exactly how I felt. I, you know, standing atop, it was all of the things. It was, I was so humbled. I was exhausted. I was relieved. I was so filled with joy it was a goal I'd worked for, you know, deferred my admission to college to stay home and train. It was just, it was like that intense feeling of accomplishment. And in the quiet moments, you know, as we were stepping off the podium, 
or in between media segments, when I was alone with myself, I heard the whispers of this voice that was like, you, you don't belong. You're just a relay girl. You, uh-huh. you didn't swim that fast. You're not athletic enough. You're not thin enough. You're not worthy of this. And that inner critic, you know, that's, that's, that's the voice that we all, no one is immune no matter what level of success you achieve. I think that's, that's the part we don't talk about that much. <laughs> You're absolutely right. There is that imposter syndrome, and that is oh. real. So yeah. fast forward, you have a major life event. Tell me what that was. Mm-hmm. So four years ago, I have four daughters, and I have, two of them are twins. And one of, one of my girls was born with a congenital heart defect, and we found that out at nine months old when she was nine months old and soon after had her heart fixed, but her heart failed following her surgery and I was bedside. So it was a very traumatic moment. She's kicking butt and thriving like all five-year-olds do, but it's been a long journey because I have had to work through and heal through the pain of PTSD. And that moment was the most brutal moment of my life. And it also cracked me wide open for me to see like, okay, wait a minute. There's no way I should be. I can be me. And that was like unlocking a new life, I feel like. I feel like liberated in ways I've just never felt liberated before. Unapologetic is how I, that's just the word I describe. Right. So you're sitting at your daughter's yeah. bedside. She's yeah. knocking on heaven's door, basically. You have other... Yeah, I thought she was gone. You have other children. You yeah. are a young mom. You're an Olympic athlete. You've conquered the world, basically, but mm-hmm. didn't realize it. And now in the quiet moments, you're mm-hmm. realizing how precious life is. And, and So, I, yeah, uh, yeah, I, absolutely. I think, you know, that way you just hit something. I think we have this idea, and I, was, I bought into it, that when you achieve, you know, you just, if you achieve this thing, then it will protect you from feeling pain you become superhuman and you no longer have to, you know, deal with the pain and the shame and the judgment. And it's actually opposite, to be quite honest. Like the higher the level of success, the more you're out there, the more judgment that you'll face. The thing is, trying to protect ourselves from that is just impossible. That's where we get really wound up with a perfectionist armor and trying to be someone we're not. And and that shattered that day because there was absolutely, you know, the idea that if I just act this way or if I just achieve this thing, that's the illusion of control. Right. And in the swimming arena, are you kidding me? Like move your hand this way, kick your feet this way, move your hips this way. There was a lot of control, a lot that I could control what I put in my body and how I, what I, you know, what I did at practice. And so that strengthened that belief system for me because I got results. And so here I was bedside with nothing that I could do other than just absolutely surrender and let the doctors and nurses save her life. It was out of your control. Out of my control. And I had to accept help. And that's like, you that's a dirty word, right? That's a dirty word for someone that struggles with perfection because then that means you can't do it all yourself. Right. So I think, you know, even if... I I think, and and that's what, in the work that I do with women, it's like, it's not even these Olympic podium moments. The, the athletes struggle with this superhuman thing, but as moms and women, it's like we've got this pressure to do it all and be it all. Absolutely. And Some yeah, of that perfection, like, though, led to an eating disorder for you. Absolutely. Yep. Two months after standing atop the podium, I actually swam in Sydney with the torn tendons in my shoulder. And it was an injury that happened, and it was sort of this thing like, what do you do? You know, what do you do? You're, 
you know, you've sacrificed your family, sacrificed all, like everything's been on the line for this moment. And I can't have a surgery now. So we just treated it and treated it and treated it. And I swam through that. And then after all of this, you know, you have this childhood dream come true, new title, Olympic gold medalist in my first semester on campus as a, as a college freshman. I was, I didn't know who to be. I, I, I felt like, who should I be? And that imposter syndrome of feeling like you're going to get found out, like if I didn't look a certain way, if I didn't act a certain way, like how should an Olympic gold medalist act? What should they say? How should they be? So in practice, I just kept pushing and pushing, and it led me to extreme pain in my shoulder, and I needed surgery. So two months, you know, two months into after Sydney, standing atop the podium, I was out of the water and trying to control all the things by numbing with food, you know, numbing and, and trying to inflict more pain on myself. I was using it as a weapon. And so, were you binging and and purging, or were you? Uh... It was everything. And you know what I you know what I told myself, and I feel like so many women do this. It didn't fit in a box. So it wasn't anorexia and it wasn't, it wasn't bulimia. So I didn't have a problem, but right. it was manipulation with food. So there were absolutely binging and purging and restricting. It was all of it in an obsession around it. And that food, it dictated my self-worth. Like if I did, if I ate, you know, if I ate these things and those were okay to eat or I didn't eat those things and I, you know, it was totally linked to my self-worth, which is dangerous, really dangerous. So thankfully I, my coach, could see something's going on here and sent me to a therapist, a mentor who's changed my life. And now you're helping many women around the world because many women struggle with eating disorders oh, and man. not feeling good enough and perfection and trying to control things it's that are out of their of control. It. Yeah, I think it's underneath. I, so I think that perfectionism is this toxic undercurrent and we can try all the things up at the surface level and we can you know, try this or do this. But if we don't, if we don't get to the narratives, like if we don't get to the beliefs, the core beliefs that we hold about ourselves, that our worthiness, that we are worthy of love and belonging without conditions, period, no matter what we look like, how we dress, any of that, like we detach all that. If we, if we can get to that, we, we, we can set, we can set ourselves free. And so that's the work I do. And, and I think, Whatever athletic arena, never an athlete. It it all resonates, especially culturally. You know, with, with the work you do with empowering women, it's like there's so much there to there, unpack. There <laughs> is so much there to, to unpack. Yeah. But you provide a roadmap to deeper joy for so many women around the world. You've inspired yeah. me. You've uh, you know made I've just taken little tidbits from you, and it's changed my day and and my world. Yeah. And so, how can people get in touch with you? Learn a little bit more about you. Oh, I'd love it. I'm on social, so I'm on social media. So on Facebook, it's Samantha Livingstone. And, and then on my, um, on Instagram's new territory for me, but I'm, I really like it over there. And that's S Livingston. But, but if you go to SamanthaLivingstone.com, that is where you can find all the information in my social accounts. And I put, I post blogs. I try to do that weekly. Um, because I believe in the power of story and I think that courage is contagious. Absolutely. And when we, uh, you know, when we give ourselves permission to be seen and to show up as we are and start where we are, it just, it sets us free. It does. And you empower mm-hmm. so many women, Samantha Arsenault, American mm-hmm. gold medalist and an incredible and amazing woman and mother. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program Thank today. You, Maureen. You're welcome. Thank I'm, you. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. 
Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I'm Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. It's always my pleasure to be here with you, and thank you for joining me on the program. Tonight, I want to talk a little bit about testosterone and and fertility and the impact that low testosterone in men has on fertility. I cannot overstate the pain of infertility for couples or even women seeking to become mothers on their own. Many people delay starting a family only to be surprised that they're having issues with fertility. I have a couple in my clinical practice right now. She's 43. He's 36. They have struggled tremendously. They've gone through numerous in vitro fertilizations and other ways to try to become pregnant. It's become very clinical and often the love, they, they say, has come out of it and the intimacy and the bonding, it seems like an act. It seems like a clinical act to them. It's impacted their relationship. It's led to low sexual desire for her. And to be quite frank with you, he really wants to have a family and they've given up and their marriage is on the brink of divorce. And this is an all too common story. But there is a new study out that I want to tell you about that uh, may demonstrate that a common over-the-counter pain medication that is ubiquitous may contribute to fertility problems in men. But I want to educate you a little bit about testosterone. That's a hormone that is produced by the human body, and it's mainly produced in men by the testicles, and it affects a man's appearance and sexual development. It also stimulates sperm production and contributes to a man's sex drive. And another very important aspect of it is that it builds muscle and bone mass. Now, it's pretty normal that testosterone production decreases with age. Men don't have quite the vitality, the energy that they had as a younger man. So this can actually begin at age 30. And that's why I often recommend to my patients to have a baseline testosterone level at the age of 40. Uh, it can decrease at 30, but it really starts to diminish at age 40. And in fact, according to the American Urological Association, about two out of 10 men older than the age of 60 have low testosterone. And that increases a little bit more to three out of 10 men in their 70s and 80s. And why is it important for those men? Because testosterone, if you recall, helps to build muscle and bone mass. And so men are at greater risk of muscle weakness and fractures as they age. And, you know, you may have gait issues or balance issues as you age. And if you add another contributing factor like low testosterone to that, it can also increase your risk significantly. And so there are a number of symptoms that can occur if testosterone production drastically drops below normal. And so one of them is, of course, low sex drive because testosterone plays a role, a significant role in libido in men. And of course, some men may experience this decline in sex drive as they age, but those with low T will likely experience a drastic drop in their libido. You may also have difficulty with erection if you have low testosterone, and that's with the ability to attain and maintain an erection adequate for penetrative sex. Testosterone isn't the only thing that leads to an erection, but it stimulates the receptors in your brain to produce that ever so important nitric oxide, which is a molecule that helps trigger a series of chemical reactions that are necessary for an erection to occur. An erection just doesn't occur. You might think that (laughs) because it can occur so frequently, especially in younger men. 
But when testosterone levels are too low, a man may have difficulty achieving that erection or having spontaneous erections, you know, such as nocturnal erections or those erections that occur when you sleep. But that's only one. Testosterone is only one of the multitude of factors that help with uh, adequate erections. And so research is inconclusive as to whether testosterone replacement uh, is beneficial in the treatment of erectile dysfunction. You're a whole lot better off to deal with a medical issue that you might have. It may be a canary in the coal mine. And it may, if, especially if you're treated for tes- low testosterone levels and you're still having symptoms of low testosterone, many other times it could be a medical condition. So those are things like thyroid problems, hypertension or high blood pressure, smoking, diabetes, alcohol use can contribute to erection function issues, depression can, stress and anxiety. So you really have to look at your health and, and be, decide to be healthy. And testosterone or how you feel, especially for men, is very important. Low testosterone can lead to low semen volume, hair loss, fatigue, loss of that muscle mass, as I say, no longer is it so easy to get the six-pack. And you may actually get increased body fat. So you may gain some weight. You may get enlarged breast tissue as a result as well. And that is believed to be the result of an imbalance between testosterone and estrogen within men. Yes, men have some estrogen in their bodies as well, just like women have some testosterone as well. But the most important thing probably as men age is that osteoporosis or thinning of the bone mass. And we often think of that as a condition that's associated with women, but men can experience this as well. But I was very intrigued by this research study that actually showed a very common pain medication, an anti-inflammatory that's over-the-counter, it's available everywhere, ibuprofen. And the study was called Ibuprofen Alters Human Testicular Physiology to Produce a State of Compensated Hypogonadism. So you wouldn't think that uh, a very simple medication, because we think of ibuprofen, and it certainly is a very benign medication. It goes by trade names, trade names like Advil, Motrin, depending on where you live, Propanol, many different brand names. Uh, they're sold over the counter, and you know they typically don't have adverse events, uh, and they're the painkiller of choice for many people. So they, they have very minimal side effects, and they typically don't interact strongly with other medications or supplements, but it's always a good idea to tell your doctor what medications, even if it is considered a benign one like ibuprofen, um, because it can have an impact on your gut or your liver. So it's important to have these conversations with your doctor. But most people don't think twice about popping a few pills to ease a headache or a uh, muscle ache or after after a workout. But ibuprofen may not be so benign for those who need to take this medication regularly. And there was a study that was done in Denmark that found in dosages of more than 1,200 milligrams a day, which is the maximum recommended amount, ibuprofen may disrupt some of the testosterone production pathways in men in as little as 10 days. So that can alter your testosterone level. And testosterone is an important sex hormone in both men and women. And in particular, it is important for that sperm production and also, of course, maintaining erections. So we, you know, this is a a lesson for uh, many different things that we think are benign but may not necessarily be. And you have to, it may be an additional question that healthcare providers need to ask uh, their patients, are you taking uh, daily ibuprofen, sir, um, for you know pain because you're a runner or you're an athlete? 
Um, and, you know, so that's an important question, important answer. This trial was a small trial, so it wasn't really very robust. There were 31 men aged 18 to 25, and they also did experiments on cell models. 14 men for the clinical trial took two dosages of 600 milligrams of ibuprofen each day, and the other received a placebo. Researchers then tracked the levels of ibuprofen and hormones in the blood of these male participants. And after 14 days, the men who had been taking ibuprofen showed signs that their testicles were not making enough testosterone. Thereby, they speculate that this may be a contributing factor to infertility in men. And so it's important to let doctors know, especially if you're going through fertility treatments, if you're taking ibuprofen, the anti-inflammatory, for muscle aches, for example, after a workout. So more information is always better, and especially that, that which you can provide to your doctor. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to The Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.